to make your way down to Children's Church right now. Second grade and younger are welcome to head on down. And if you remain with us in your the third to seventh grade age range, there should be a, a three-ring binder in the back. You're welcome to, to take and to take some notes. There are uh, those with uh, names on them, and there are also extra ones that are there for visitors. And so if you're third to seventh grade and would like to take some notes in a special binder just for you, please do so. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the unseen worker in moments like this. You are unfolding the very work of your vocation right now as we open our Bibles and depend upon you in every way for the gift of illumination to see what what is really here in front of us and to understand it faithfully and to not just understand the truths but to treasure these truths and then to live in view of the extraordinary realities that we're going to handle this morning. So, Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you would come and do your work, fulfill your vocation right now as we seek to find ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Labor unions have a story in our nation that stretch back to just after the time of the Civil War. Uh, For those of us in the room that might be less familiar with labor unions or or simply unions, uh, these are collections, organizations of employees that came about in order to protect and promote the interest of workers in relationship to their employers. Uh, Such interests might include fair wages or adequate benefits or decent working conditions and so on. Um, Now, membership in unions has deteriorated over time. Um, But it's interesting that even as recently um, as just the last year or so, statistics would tell us that there are still roughly 15 million members of labor unions nationwide today between the AFL-CIO and the Change to Win Federation, two large umbrella labor organizations in our nation. 15 million people among us and some in this room that are a part of unions. City employees, government workers, teachers, police officers, and others. Nevertheless, as I said, union membership is falling. And if you could see it on a graph, you would see a trend where membership in labor unions rose dramatically during the years of the Great Depression and kind of leveled off just after the Second World War. That was the high water mark. And although membership in unions has ebbed and flowed a bit since then, the broader trend has been a rather steep decline in the last couple of generations. Now, there are probably a lot of reasons for the trend and the drop-off of membership in unions that range from the most obvious reasons to the more obscure ones, from complex causes to simple ones, but there's no doubt about it. Uh, Labor unions, uh, there are far fewer members, and there is far less 
uh, popularity and approval of such unions even than there were a generation ago. Hold that thought. Um, in their book, The Gospel at Work, How Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs, authors Sebastian Traeger and Gil Greg Gilbert write, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to redeem a people for himself, he also did so to conform them more and more closely to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that he does this through all the circumstances of our lives, including our jobs. Now here's the sentence. Our jobs are one of the primary ways that God intends to make us more like Jesus. Now that's the sentence I'd like for us to consider and camp out on over these next moments together. Because I truly wonder how many of us believe this. Our jobs are one of the primary ways that God intends to make us more like Jesus. Now, I would imagine a lot of us would have no trouble believing that Bible reading and prayer and Christian fellowship and serving in different ways, how these are means of grace to make us more like his son. But how many of us truly believe that what we do from 9 to 5, or in some cases 5 to 9, I know both of those schedules, how many of us truly believe that our work is a particular, special, unique gift, a means of the grace of God to conform us slowly and steadily to the image of Jesus Christ, tailor-made just for you? Authors Traeger and Gilbert continue, quote, God uses our work to sanctify us to develop our Christian character, to teach us to love him more and serve him better until we join him on the last day resting from our labors. The New Testament actually makes a pretty big deal of how we should think about our work. I couldn't agree more. For the purposes of our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we'll put it this way. If you are in Christ, you possess membership in the ultimate labor union. If you are in Christ, you possess membership in the ultimate labor union. Now remember, labor unions exist to protect and promote the interest of employees on the job. And your job is one of the primary ways that God intends to make you more like Jesus. It's also true that your job is one of the primary ways that God intends your witness to introduce others to Jesus. We've said it before in this church and we'll continue to say it. As a believer, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation. If you're a Christian, you are skillfully disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation, but you are an ambassador of Jesus. You may care for a home full of children, you might teach a classroom, work in an office situation of some kind, in a cubicle, 40 hours a week or more. And as we said during the pastoral prayer, some of you are, are gainfully employed and are grateful for it. Some of you are currently unemployed and would love nothing more than to, to catch on somewhere fast. Others, as we mentioned, are in retirement mode and, and are in a different season of life after having served 40 years or so in the workforce. Some are unable to work and depend upon the work of others. Others of you are depending, or rather are preparing for your life's vocation. You are students. Um, 
quick note on students that are with us this morning. If you are primary school, middle school, high school, college, graduate school, this is your work. This is your work. This is your preparation for your vocation and your calling. Your divine summons from the author of the universe to give your God-given time and talents for the common good as well as for the glory and praise of Christ. And if you are in Christ, you possess membership in the ultimate labor union. So listen from your own context this morning as well as to listen sympathetically to the situations that are of those around you. Probably no situations are exactly alike. Two applications today. One is for employees and the other for employers. One for leaders and for those who follow. Here's the first point. Employees, never forget that Jesus Christ is your supervisor. And that changes everything. Employees, never forget that Jesus Christ is your supervisor and that changes everything. Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the work, the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Employees never forget that Jesus Christ is your supervisor and that changes everything. I trust you see that in verses 5 to 8 that... Those verses are not addressed to employees, but rather to slaves. And furthermore, verse 9 is not addressed to employers, but rather to masters. And I think the thoughtful Bible reader with his or her antenna up is wondering why we're aiming the application this way to Christian vocation in the 21st century when it was crystal clear that Paul was aiming this at a master-slave relationship in the first century. The answer to that question is actually surprisingly simple, and it's this, that first century slavery in the Roman Empire, the sort that Paul is addressing here, looked far more like today's employee-employer relationship in the 21st century than it did, say, African enslavement in the 19th century in this nation, or for that matter, 21st century global slave trafficking today. Um, it's probably most accurate to say there actually is nothing comparable today in the 21st century to what Paul was addressing in the first. There is no modern phenomena that really is a one-to-one -one correspondence with this. Uh, New Testament scholar Wayne Grudem writes, the horrible degradation of slaves in 19th century America gives the word slaves here in verse 5 a far worse connotation than is accurate. First century slaves were generally well-treated, and they were not only unskilled laborers, but managers and overseers and trained members of various professions. Slaves would have included doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. Grudem continues, there was extensive, extensive legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could eventually expect to purchase their freedom. Now, it was involuntary. You were either born into it or you found yourself thrown into it because you couldn't pay your debts. Uh, so social standing was low, economic independence not a, not a live possibility while you were a slave. 
but Grudem says, a, a word stronger than servant and yet weaker than slave is needed. Uh, something meaning semi-impermanent employee without legal or economic freedom. What word is that? There is no word for that. There is no modern correspondence to this. There certainly is no 19th century American correspondence to this. Nearly one quarter of the population of the Roman Empire at one point in their lives found themselves slaves. One out of four. Most slaves knew freedom by age 30, if not before. Slaves often owned their own property. And furthermore, and maybe most striking, slavery in the Roman Empire was not racially or ethnically motivated at all. It was economically motivated. It's helpful, actually, to listen to a couple of voices from church history who were far closer to the scene than we find ourselves. Uh, early church father Theodoret writes, It was necessary for Paul to offer instructions for slaves. They were present everywhere in the church and in the gathered worship service. Or listen to the great preacher and church father John Chrysostom, who writes, Paul instructs these virtuous servants who contribute so much to the organization and protection of the household. He does not overlook them. So, while the situation in our text is far from ideal, uh, it's way ahead of what we typically think of when we hear this word. The word slave for us in the, word, in the year 2010 in America has connotations that are understandably, irredeemably um, negative, appropriately negative. In fact, that's why the ESV, as well as many other English translations, suggest a word like servant here or bondservant. They seem to kind of flip back and forth, not knowing what to call this. So when we consider this ancient arrangement, what it actually looked like, we find that the closest analog we probably have in our culture is the modern employee-employer relationship. And that being the case, employees, never forget that Jesus Christ is your supervisor. Never. How could we miss it? Uh, three distinct times in these verses to slaves, Paul references Jesus as their true master. You see that? Their true supervisor. Verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Three powerful, unambiguous statements from the pen of the Apostle Paul that when you are an employee, you render that service in Christ to Christ. You as a Christian in the workplace possess membership in the ultimate labor union. In fact, it's, it's 10,000 times better than your typical labor union arrangement because protection from the management is not what you're seeking. You are laboring alongside the management in union with your manager, your Lord and Master Jesus. The one you work for is the one you work with when you're on the job. That's encouraging. Uh, Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. And it, it changes everything. 
say, okay, uh, but everything sounds a little vague and high-flying. Could you break down everything? One practical thing that it changes? Yeah, I'll tell you three things it changes right here in Ephesians. Notice in verse 6 that we as employees are not to render our work by way of eye service as people pleasers. Eye service. You see it there? In verse 6, the Apostle Paul, so far as we know, makes up a word. He coins a term. You can study Koine Greek and ancient Greek. There There is no word that existed in the Greek language to this point. So Paul made it up. Not by way of eye service. What's eye service? It's the idea of the employee who works hard only when they can be sure the boss's eye is on them. Eye service. Paul calls it people pleasing. That's what you're doing if you're rendering eye service. And it's true that in most cases our earthly masters don't watch every move we make. They can't. Some bosses hover more closely than others, so I'll grant that, but they can't see everything, right? No supervisor sees everything, right? Uh, be careful. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. 1 Peter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. They're on you if you're in Christ. 2 Chronicles 16.9 is the greatest promise here. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth in order to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. On the job, we don't offer eye service to our employer because, frankly, we can't afford to. We don't have that option. That's not a live possibility for us. We don't only work when the boss is watching because there's never a time when the boss isn't watching. He sees all. That's why verses 6 and 7 go on to speak of integrity as an employee. Christian workers are people who do the will of God on the job from the heart, rendering service in your workplace as to the Lord and not to man. Again, I'll quote the church father, John Chrysostom, who says, the goal is not merely to serve and do nothing wrong. It's to serve with all one's might. Paul doesn't call servants to do what is barely due, but to serve abundantly out of ardor, not from necessity. That's what he's saying. As Christians in the workplace, we're called to be model employees. And employers notice this kind of thing. I have a a buddy who's a mechanic in Waconia, and he is given to hiring Crown College students. He swears by them. Why? You know why. Because when they work for him, they're not working for him. They're working for Christ. They work in a labor union, a cut above what he normally sees. Another reason that Jesus, as your supervisor, changes everything, uh, look at verse 8. We are to render work to the Lord, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, it goes without saying, but let's go ahead and say it. He doesn't have to do this. Um, Our Lord is under no obligation to us at this or any 
point, for that matter, ever. It sometimes gets lost in this whole discussion of vocation, but we must never forget it, that Jesus Christ had a calling too. And it wasn't carpentry only. It was atonement. Atonement was his vocation. The work that Jesus did in his life and in his death to earn our salvation. That's atonement. And the work is now complete. It's finished. And out of his retirement assets, Jesus Christ is going to reward us. That's what verse 8 says. Whatever good anyone does. Now, I don't, I don't know what these rewards entail exactly. This is tantalizing enough to work hard, to work well from the heart. I have a feeling it'll be worth waiting for. If you work 40 hours a week for 40 years of your life, that's 80,000 hours at work over the arc of your career. And verse 8 says, whatever good anyone does during that stretch, he will receive back from the Lord. Uh, That's encouraging. That's motivating. Think of it as a union benefit. When Jesus Christ is your supervisor... It changes everything. One more thought before we make application for Christian employers. <clears throat> Several weeks ago, back in September, we were working through Ephesians chapter 4, and we did a little hop over verse 28 because I said it fit better in, in this particular sermon than it did in the one that I was preaching. So we're going to go back and pick up that verse this morning. I think you'll understand why as I read Ephesians 4.28 as we see another reason why working for King Jesus really matters. Ephesians 4.28 says to believers in union with Christ, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor with his own hands so that he may have something good to share with anyone who is in need. When you are a Christian at work, when you possess membership in this labor union, you think of your paycheck differently than unbelievers laboring alongside you. When your work provides the needs for your own household, the next thought that you have isn't, how can I become more upwardly mobile? It's, how can I become more downwardly mobile? That is, how can these resources serve other people in need? One of the reasons we ought to work as hard as we possibly can is so that we can earn as much as we possibly can in order to bless as many people with those resources as we possibly can. And this is just a word to those who aren't currently working, but could be. Don't forfeit yourself the opportunity to afford the financial means to bless other people. I'm not talking about those who are unable to work in the room. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone in the room who refuses to work. Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, you're stealing. You're a thief. If you will not labor with your own hands, you won't have anything to place in anyone else's hands. You see how Paul positively draws us to this. And if you're in union with Christ, you possess membership in the ultimate labor union. So employees never forget that Jesus Christ is your supervisor. It changes everything.
One final application today. It doesn't apply to every last one of us in the room, but maybe to a handful. Employers. Employers never forget that the buck doesn't stop with you. It stops with him. Employers never forget that the buck doesn't stop with you. It actually stops with, with him, with Jesus. Verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Employers, the buck doesn't stop with you. Many will remember that that was a phrase made popular by U.S. President Harry Truman. It's a great image, of course, because... Buck stopping is built upon the idea of buck passing, passing the buck. You pass the buck when you relieve yourself of ultimate responsibility in a situation. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you're a Christian employer, manager of some kind who loves the Lord, what he's saying is that you can feel free to absolve yourself of final responsibility in the workplace. Because as Christian employers... As managers in Christ, you are still in the labor union. Does that make sense? Verse 9 contains five words to masters, uh, to employers, that were simply unheard of in the first century. This is what would have shaken up a congregation in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. After calling slaves to respectful and sincere conduct toward their masters, Paul turns right around and says to masters, to employers, do the same to them. This is a groundbreaking workplace ethic. Masters have a master too. Christian supervisors have a supervisor, capital S. And as verse 9 also says, there is no partiality with him. No partiality. It is a wonderfully vivid term that our English obscures uh, at every turn. Um, it literally, if you were to translate it literally in English, it would mean, it would say, uh, he does not receive faces. There's no face receiving with the Lord. That may sound weird, but we know how this works. Um, my daughter and I uh, love to play cards these days, and I've taught her high-low. So she establishes if the ace is going to be high or low at the beginning of the game. And later on, for her own purposes, she may tell me, now wait a minute, actually I wanted the ace to be low. I know it was going to be high, I don't want it to be low now. And she doesn't understand why she can't do that. And then she'll push out this little lip, and then these massive brown eyes. What's she doing? Well, she's giving me a face. And if I receive it, which I normally do, I'm showing partiality. That's the word here in verse 9. And that is one thing God does not do on Judgment Day for masters who are harsh with their servants. It's a warning to employers and to leaders and to teachers and people in my line of work. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So, if you're an employer, 
Save yourself a difficult conversation on Judgment Day. Put away the goad and the whip. Stop driving your employees and draw them. Draw them with your personal example. Draw them with your love for the Lord. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Employers never forget that the buck doesn't stop with you. It stops with him. If you're in Christ, you possess membership in the ultimate labor union. So employees, never forget that Jesus Christ is your, your supervisor. It changes everything. Employers, never forget that the buck doesn't stop with you. It stops with him. Your job is one of the primary ways that God is conforming you to the image of Jesus. You think he would waste 80,000 hours of your life? No. No. And your job is also one of the primary ways that God intends for you to introduce others to Jesus. So labor tomorrow. Labor this week. Some of you go to work this afternoon. I know you do. Labor this week in union with Christ, with all of the pardon that Christ grants you for your sin, with all of the power that you could possibly imagine to carry out your calling and all of the purpose you would ever need. Next week is our final Sunday in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, I get wistful when we get to the end of a book. I don't want to let it go, but we got to let it go. The topic next week is spiritual warfare in Christ. And I have a sense that the Lord may have something significant for our congregation as we look at this text. So buckle your seatbelt and, and pray for the sermon this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that work is not the curse. Our work has been cursed, but work is part of the good design of this universe before sin entered the world and messed everything up. And we are grateful, Jesus, that you took up the work of atonement for us and for our sins and for our salvation. Thank you for living our life and for dying a penalty that each of us deserve under the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. We thank you that your work is finished. And it ended with a thunderclap as you came out of that tomb on the third day. And so as we look for your soon return, may we labor well in our places of employment. Thank you for our callings, our vocations, the summons that you have on each of our lives to meaningfully labor for the gospel in the way that you've uniquely equipped us. Lord, from, from students to those in employment mode to those in retirement mode, may each person this morning have a word from God to take home with them. For Jesus' glory we ask it. Amen.